Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We are. We are. We are Cultivate. 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 We are Cultivate. Pineapple Pizza Podcast discusses the histories, cultures, and beliefs of regions around the world. These stories often contain mature and sometimes disturbing content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Pineapple Pizza Podcast, where we serve up slices of mythology, cryptozoology, and urban legends. It's an interesting combination of flavors. Weird, but it works. Today's special is a historical wild card. Woo! <laughs> I'm your host, is Ashley, and with me today, as always, are the quirky and quick-witted Emily and Lindsay. <laughs> I like those. Hey, I don't always feel quick-witted, so thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm really excited that I managed to come up with two adjectives that started with Q that actually describe <laughs> you. <laughs> I was going to say, good kudos, man. I was like, fuck yeah, go for a weird letter this time. Let's do it. <laughs> oh, we should start doing it alphabetically. I was thinking about that, but then I realized when we get to X, we're all going to be <laughs> fucked. <laughs> Like, I don't know about you, but the only X adjective I can think of right now is xenophobic, and that doesn't describe either of you, thank no. God. No, it doesn't. And not. it's not a good way to describe anybody unless they really mm. are xenophobic. And then do it. They won't even know what it means. It'll be funny. <laughs> It'll be like, what? And then you punch him in the nuts. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> if you're flexible, what you really want to do is the Jean-Claude Van Damme splits and then punch him in the nuts. <laughs> Confuse him again. <laughs> it's awesome. Do it. All right. So we should probably do the story, though. So. All right. I love how sometimes I think I'm Morgan Freeman. Like, I can tell when I wrote this intro that I was, like, hearing Morgan Freeman's voice in my head. Pretend I'm Morgan Freeman as I'm reading this, okay? Can you do his voice? No. I'm picturing <laughs> It's it. liquid honey. Who it can is. do that? Like, it's smooth. It's audible honey. Honey is liquid. I'm a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> it's audible gold. To be fair, it is very viscous. It so is. I think you could sort of argue it's almost a solid. That's right. Science. Anyway, I'm Morgan Freeman. Go. 
He would laugh at his own jokes. Don't do this. <laughs> I bet you he would. <laughs> All right. Guantanamo Bay. Alcatraz. Shadow Deep. The Tower of London. Devil's Island. These are some of the most infamous prisons from world history. And the fortress in Pinerolo, Italy, has a similar right to infamy. Used as a prison by the French in the 17th century, its most notable prisoner prior to August 1669 was Nicolas Fouquet, Louis XIV's former superintendent of finances who'd been banished to Pinerolo for corruption and treason. Whoops. (laughs) But that was about to change. On roughly the 20th of August, the major of the garrison of Dunkirk delivered a mysterious prisoner to the castle. Within 11 days of his arrival, this prisoner had been shrouded in such a great degree of secrecy that Benine de Auvergne de Saint-Mars, fucking French names, (laughs) The governor of the Citadel began to amusedly speculate as to this prisoner's identity, jokingly referring to him as a Marshal of France. While this mystery prisoner had certainly piqued the governor's interest, the outside world would not become enamored with the question of his identity until 1687, when a handwritten newsletter began to spread the rumor that St. Mars, whom the author referred to as Sink Mars by mistake, close enough, close enough, had picked up a prisoner whose face was concealed by an iron mask and escorted him from Pinerolo to San Marguerite, an island in the Mediterranean. The author of this newsletter claimed the masked prisoner to be none other than Nicolas Fouquet. To the anonymous author's credit, Fouquet was, in fact, in Pinerolo, as we've already established. However, (laughs) he had already been dead for seven years by 1687. So if he was walking, he was pulling like a weekend at Bernie's. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it probably wasn't him. Weekend at Bernolo's. Bernolo's. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. At Bernatoli's. No, I just want pasta. I'm just thinking about pasta now. (laughs) (laughs) So the author was aware of this, but claimed Fouquet's death had been faked by the authorities. So he's like, it's an even bigger conspiracy. It's a conspiracy within a conspiracy. A conspiracy Russian nesting doll? Question mark? He would fit in in America today. He sure would. (laughs) I can see the appeal of this kind of salacious gossip. I mean, let's be honest, we all like weird shit. That's what brought us three together, for sure. Mm -hmm. But, to be honest, Fouquet's real story is every bit as fascinating and gossip-worthy without there being a fake death at the end for embellishment. So, sorry guys, when he died, he actually died. Womp womp. Womp womp. (laughs) Um, But we'll come back to that shortly. For now, we need to get our attention back on the masked prisoner. Thanks to famed French philosopher Voltaire and author Alexandre Dumas, the mystery of this masked menace would ultimately reach heights the monarchy did not see coming, 
Although, <laughs> if we're gonna be honest, the French monarchy did not see a lot of things coming, and most <laughs> of the time it involved their heads getting cut off, but that's fine. <laughs> oh, that's harsh. I wasn't there. I didn't cut their heads off. <laughs> I didn't cut anyone's head off that we're aware of, so... <laughs> I don't think I'd forget that no matter how bad the short-term memory loss is, but we'll see. <laughs> I said we'll see, like I'm gonna do it for an experiment. But hey, I guess they decided that rampant public speculation was easier to bear than actually giving the masked man his day in court and risking far more open public scrutiny. In Voltaire's The Age of Louis XIV, originally published in 1751, he wrote that the enigmatic prisoner had been taken to San Marguerite in close proximity to the death of Cardinal Mazarin. Voltaire went on to describe this man as tall, noble, and handsome. Wait, wait, wait. Despite the fact that he also reported the prisoner was required to wear a mask with a flexible iron jaw at all times. Hey, Voltaire, how do you know he's handsome? Maybe maybe it's not the face that he appreciates. <laughs> it's that shapely ass or something, right? It was, he has oh. the most beautiful calves I have ever seen. <laughs> you guys seen those ankles? Woo. Voltaire also learned from a source, Michel Camilliard, a former minister of war, that the prisoner's identity was a state secret he had sworn never to repeat. Ooh, now that just sounds intriguing and mysterious. It's almost as juicy as Mothman's ass. Almost. <laughs> almost. You can't bounce a quarter off of it. I mean, you off of the iron mask, you could. It would make a really loud ping. <laughs> All right, so here we need to take a beat because these written records are where this whole man in the iron mask moniker comes from. So we had that newsletter that mentioned an iron mask, and now we have Voltaire's book. But the truth is that historical documents describe the actual mask worn by the prisoner as being made of velvet, which Ooh. I think we can all agree is considerably more comfortable than a mask of fucking iron. It's probably yeah. a little lighter. Better yeah. for the skin. Maybe that's why he was so handsome, because he just had like constant exfoliation going on with that velvet mask until your face is rubbed off it rubs the velvet on its skin or else, or else it gets the, the mask, mask again, again. <laughs> <laughs> oh good god like many other aspects of this mystery even this crucial detail has been obscured by the effort of retelling the story so many fucking times it's like a really old game of telephone except they didn't have telephones they just had weird newsletters that everyone passed around and only literate people could read and understand yeah, well, you know, illiterate poor people don't count as people at this point in history. And in fact, some yeah. people would argue we still don't. I'm not illiterate, but I am poor. <laughs> that in an iron mask sounds a lot more menacing than a velvet mask. But in a velvet mask sounds a lot more French. It does. Just like in my opinion. Kind of makes me think of um, Scarecrow from Batman, though. 
Oh, okay. It could, be, it could be creepier than an iron mask. That mask in the version that had Killian Murphy mm -hmm. as the scarecrow was fucking terrifying. That, that still haunts my dreams. Scary. Oh my god. I'll never look at potato sacks the same way again. <laughs> I will still look at them as containing delicious food. <laughs> By the time playwright Alexander Dumas picked up the story for use in his Three Musketeers novel, it was widely accepted that there was a man who wore an iron mask to hide his identity who was kept in prison. By the way, it's Dumas' version of the story that has inspired pretty much every single existing movie adaptation of the story of the man in the iron mask, including the movie version that has Leonardo DiCaprio in it. I loved that movie. I think I only watched it once. I think I saw it in the theater. I could be wrong. My memory is not so great. No comment about memory. <laughs> <laughs> I miss mine. Come back. I love you. <laughs> Bring the battery. <laughs> Bring me the batteries. Okay. <laughs> if you've seen that Leonardo DiCaprio movie... You'll already know that it depicts the man in the iron mask as the twin brother of Louis XIV, who is kept imprisoned and masked to prevent him from challenging his twin brother's right to the throne of France. Mm -hmm. Personally, I've only ever seen bits and pieces of this film on television, so it was already edited anyway, and there were ads in it, and I don't really know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but... I do like this theory, if I'm being honest. Like, it appeals to my taste for bizarre royal family drama. Mm -hmm. Like, that, I eat that mm -hmm. shit up, and so do a lot of people. Yep. Like, I love the idea of, like, a secret twin that's kept in a dungeon somewhere. But here's the problem. As a real historical theory, it doesn't fucking work. <laughs> Even if you're not that into history, if you're one of those people that enjoys, like, some of the salacious modern period dramas that we've had over the years, you're probably already aware of the simple fact that the sex life of the king and queen is always closely monitored so as to ensure the validity of the line of succession. Yeah, like, in a creepy kind of closeness. As in, there oh, are people yeah. in the room when you do it the first time. Sometimes yep. at the very end of the bed, watching you mm -hmm. do it. Yep. Yep. Uh, and by the way, doctors actually kept records of when and how often the King of France ejaculated. Yeah. Yep. That's more information than I really needed to know, too. But I had to find out about it, so now you also have to know. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> French historian Joseph Delors, uh, who lived from 1789 to 1847 dug into the archives following the French Revolution. You know that thing I was talking about where the royals got overthrown and it was really violent? Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, he found a number of papers belonging to the prisoner, sorry, the prison governor, St. Mars, who we were talking about earlier. And that's important because St. Mars actually took the man in the iron mask with him every single time he was reassigned to a new prison. Oh, that's interesting. Like, that's that's how closely this person's identity was protected. Like, if they sent the governor somewhere else, he had to go along with him because they didn't want a new prison governor to get involved in the secret. That's crazy. The French are dramatic. Can't no, wait. they're not. 
It's okay. I'm also a dramatic bitch, and I, if you don't like it, get out. <laughs> <laughs> the French know things. It's fine. So anyway, he found a lot of papers that belonged to this St. Mars, and among them, he came across one that said the name of the mysterious prisoner who'd come to Pinerolo in 1669 was Eustache Dauge. <laughs> you stash or my stash? <laughs> it's you stash, but thanks for playing. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that was a fairly common uh, French first name for boys at this time. There's more than one you stash in the book I read about this. It was confusing. <laughs> that is confusing. What an interesting name. Just rolls yeah. out the tongue. It doesn't. Did you stash have a moustache? I don't know, because, you know. We don't really have any pictures of him. Without the mask? At all. If he did, it was velvet. (laughs) (laughs) Delore also found evidence that Dauge had been a valet. Dauge, valet. Okay, I'm done. I'm fine. Theodore, a young, the first historian to be granted access to the Ministry of War's archives, found more documents referring to a prisoner named Eustache Dauge, sometimes spelled danger with an N in it, like danger with an S on the end, but you don't pronounce the S because it's French. What an awesome last name that would be. How cool would it be if your last name was Dangers? <laughs> <laughs> dangers. You stash dangers. I'd watch it. In 1868, François Ravesson published a multi-volume collection of works entitled Archives of the Bastille. You know, another infamous French prison that once housed the man in the iron mask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. His collection contained a previously undiscovered letter from the Archives of War. This letter was written by the Marquis de Louvois to Nicolas Fouquet, asking if Daugé had revealed to any other valet what he has seen, what he was employed at doing, and if he'd said anything at all about his past life. Color me intrigued. Oh, you better be intrigued. This letter strongly suggests that Fouquet and Daugier had known each other before they were arrested, and that they shared some dark secret that likely explained how both of them ended up in prison, as in a secret that predates Fouquet's own arrest in 1661, despite Daugé's not having been arrested until 1669. Ooh, so what would take them that long? It's a big question. That is a big question. Putting together all the evidence. Stroking your mustache if you have one. Rubbing your velvet mask. I'm so luxurious. <laughs> Just petting your own face. <laughs> so we have a name. Although it's fair to say there's a real possibility Dauge could be an alias of some kind. But we've still only scratched the surface of this mystery. It turns out for a few hundred years, we've been too focused on the wrong question. Too concerned with who the man in the iron mask was when we should have been asking why he was in prison. 
Let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll dive headfirst into some freaky French history. Actually, we might want to be careful about leading with our heads unless we want to lose them. Oh. oh. Do you love true crime but are looking for something different? It sounds like a sitcom. It does. The Benders. The kind of assholes you should probably leave them alone. Do you like learning about cases so off the wall they can't possibly be true? Her wig is enormous, but it is lifted off her head by a monkey. Do you love history, but want to hear about what they didn't teach you in school? It's just got a almost where you hang your horns sign. <laughs> Do you like laughing awkwardly about cases that are bizarre and a little strange? They'd be able to wield so many knives with all of their little arms. <laughs> Then we have the podcast for you. Join me, Lindsay. And me, Madison, for Ye old Crime. Where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. Listen every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. And we're back. I hope you're hungry because it's time for our main course, and it might just hold you captive. Okay, if... Paul Sonino's carefully put-together historical detective story is to be believed, the real crux at the heart of this mystery is not the prisoner himself, but rather one of the chief ministers of France. If you're thinking Cardinal Richelieu because that's the one that you remember, you're wrong. (laughs) That's the only one that I knew before I did this story, so, you know, what are you going to do? I'm actually talking about Cardinal Richelieu's successor, Cardinal Mazarin. Think of Cardinal Mazarin, birth name Giulio Raimondo Mazarini, as a hand-picked heir of sorts. Richelieu had so much faith in his pupil that he was largely responsible for helping him attain the rank of Cardinal in the first place. Mm-hmm. Cardinal Richelieu passed away in December of 1642, followed just six months later by King Louis XIII. And suddenly, Queen Anne of Austria found herself in an even more precarious position than she, a foreign queen with many enemies, had been in while her husband, who didn't like her very much either, was still alive. So on the one hand, you're Anne of Austria and you're like, yeah, my husband finally died, that's awesome. I hated that guy. And then on the other hand, you're like, oh, shit, everyone hates me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not good. Yeah, they really did not like having foreign rulers. Mm-mm. The French hated Austrians, and I don't understand why. Like, they kept importing queens from Austria, and then they'd be like, fuck you for being Austrian. And I'm like, you don't, that doesn't make any sense, but it's fine. Yeah, you mentioned they were dramatic, so... I'm sure they just needed somebody to hate. And they were just They're like, like, you cold Austrian bitch. We can't hate our king. We gotta hate his wife. It's probably better than importing from Britain in their opinion. Mm, I don't know. Sometimes they like England. Sometimes they don't like England. That's like all of history. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes people liked England and other times they were like, England, you're the worst. And then they would attack them. That's that's history in a nutshell. Yep. Uh, we talked for so long that my screen went dark. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, although, to be honest, 
Anne's relationship with her husband had been strained at best, and one of her biggest detractors was his own mother. How many people out there can relate to that? My mother-in-law hates my guts. Mm -hmm. But, unfortunately for her, her mother-in-law was Marie de' Medici. And it's like, that's not good because the Medicis are very powerful and they will fuck up your whole life. No kidding. Yeah. Didn't help that Queen Anne's son, Louis XIV, was only four. So yeah, he's four, but he's the king. That's always a dangerous position because then you have regents that take over power and everybody's jostling for it. Well, Queen Anne had to become regent, and frankly, she was like, I do not want this. (laughs) So, she hot-potatoed that shit over to Cardinal Mazarin. (laughs) You take it! I don't want it! I don't want it! I can't govern a country! Take it! So yeah, she was like, Cardinal Mazarin, uh, yeah, you are first minister, and you can govern the country, and I will be over here looking cute, because that's what I do best. Whispers abounded over the years of a lurid affair between Anne and Mazarin. However, it's not very likely they were lovers because Mazarin would have been keenly aware that were Anne to become pregnant, a thing that happens when you repeatedly have unprotected sex, Mm -hmm. and that's the only kind there was Mm -hmm. (laughs) back in the day, um, their affair would be easily exposed and would end up jeopardizing the line of succession. Apparently Mazarin was hot, though, if that helps anybody. Doesn't help me. He probably didn't look like Henry Cavill. (laughs) Probably not. Well, that's good. That would have been a thirst trap of a cardinal. Mm, Cardinal thirst trap. Cardinal thirst trap. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. That's a romance novel right there. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Not yet, you haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. We're writing fanfic instead of doing this story. Anyway, Mazarin maintained his position as First Minister of France until his death, despite Louis XIV receiving the majority vote needed to fully ascend to the throne at the tender age of 13. Can you even imagine people being like, well, he's 13 now, that's good enough? No. Have unlimited power. Because you are an absolute monarch. Do you remember what you were like when you were 13? I would have been horrible. I have a 13-year-old, and imagining (laughs) her ruling a country fills me with fear and apprehension. Um, I am currently 1,501 years old, and I should not be allowed to run a whole country. It would be a bad idea. So, just saying. 13 does not seem like a good idea to me, but whatever, no one asked my opinion. To make a long story short, Mazarin was an incredibly ambitious man. And like many incredibly ambitious people, he was a bit of a narcissist. What? What? (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, he was dedicated to the service of France, and he did work tirelessly in his position as first minister. But that in no way slowed him down from plucking up all the titles, works of art, properties, and general wealth he could get his greedy, greedy hands on. Sounds right. Sounds like a cardinal. Mine, 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 (laughs) mine, mine. 
It probably happened a lot like that, but maybe with like a map or something instead of just grabbing the air. I don't know. He was just constantly licking his finger and touching all the things. <laughs> he like licked off his fingerprints on his pointer finger from licking it so much. That's my This is divine mind. saliva. <laughs> God wills it. Oh, goodness. It probably comes as no surprise that a large number of his acquisitions were gotten through what I would like to call shady means. <laughs> no. <laughs> I like expensive shit and I don't care who it belongs to. It's mine now. Like any scandalous member of the aristocracy, Mazarin too had a great many enemies, so he made it a point to keep a few trusted friends very close. Among those friends were Nicolas Fouquet and Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who were destined to become frenemies. Aww. Aww. Oh, yeah. That's classic French. It is. It is. They, they invented, invented the it. frenemy. Yep. They really did. <laughs> That's so French. <laughs> uh, and their relationship has a central role in the mystery of the man in the Iron Mask, as I'm going to keep calling him, even though we've already established it was Velvet. It's more fun this way. It's the name everyone knows, it is. so we're going to stick with it. Fouquet thought they were bestest bros, but it turns out Colbert's ambitions meant stabbing people in the back and the front and probably a few more times in the back for good measure, were totally acceptable things to do. <laughs> anyway, Colbert was so good at ass-kissing that he made himself an indispensable favorite of Mazarin's, and he used that position to cast all kinds of shade on Fouquet. When the superintendent of finances died on January 2nd, 1653, there were two key people in contention to replace him. That's how it works. We don't even wait till you're cold. There are already vultures trying to take your job. Those two contenders were Nicolas Fouquet and Abel Servien. Colbert advised Mazarin to appoint Servien, but not wanting to multiply his enemies even more, Mazarin settled the problem in the style of King Solomon. He split the position in half and gave both men half a job. Servien was placed in charge of dispersing state funds and Fouquet with finding funds when they needed more money. <laughs> Which I think we can all agree was the much harder job and that they always <laughs> needed more fucking money. Yeah. It's government, right? Yeah. Over the intervening years leading up to February 1659 when Servien passed away, Fouquet worked doggedly to keep up with Mazarin's er, I mean, France's, except not really, because it's Mazarin's, constant demands to find more money. However, while Fouquet was busy busting his ass, Colbert was busy charming his way even further into Mazarin's good graces. So when Servienne died, Fouquet was now stuck with an even more demanding job in which he was generally set up to fail. None of us know what that feels like. You know all that money you just gave me? It's gone. I need more. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday. Because I owe money to people. A lot. <laughs> know that feeling. Yeah, I know. <laughs> What'd you do? I bet on the wrong horse. <laughs> to 
Fouquet's face, Mazarin continued to offer his thanks for his efforts as superintendent of finances, but thanks to the incessant whispering of his favorite bird-slash-advisor, Colbert, Mazarin had become extremely disenchanted and dissatisfied with Fouquet. Again, maybe don't set people up to fail. It's not a cool thing to do. You can't set someone up to fail and then be like, God damn it, why do you suck so bad at your job? (laughs) And that's what happened. That's what happened. I don't even know where he kept finding money, but God knows he did. Somewhere. When Mazarin's doctors informed him that his ailing health meant he didn't have long to live, he was presented with a monumental problem. What do you do with a massive stack of illicit wealth you've accumulated? (laughs) What do you do? Oh my goodness, the truth's gonna come out. An inventory of a deceased's estate was required by law in Paris, as it was meant to ensure the benefit of both the deceased's heirs and their creditors. But a man who'd made exhaustive efforts to hide the vastness of his wealth during life wasn't about to let his creditors have out the treasure hoard just because he was dying. So, how could he pass his possessions on, but still keep the real value of his estate a secret? Mazarin's original plan was to draw up the simplest will possible, leaving the bulk of his possessions in the hands of King Louis XIV to distribute as the king would be considered above any questions. You can't be like, oh, where's the rest of the money? What'd you do with it? Who'd you give it to? Why didn't you write it down? You can't ask questions, your head will get chopped off. That's how life works. Yeah. And he's 13, so he wouldn't know anyway. Well, he's not 13 no, I know, anymore. But- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although, when he was 13, he probably burned ants with a magnifying glass. (laughs) But on reconsideration, it was thought this might cast too great a shadow over the king because he was both a distributor and an heir to the estate. This led to the creation of a more detailed second draft of Mazarin's will. In this second draft, Mazarin bestows unbelievable confidence and faith in Jean-Baptiste Colbert, putting all of his documents into Colbert's hands, and includes a provision that the account books for Mazarin's household should only be permitted to be examined by Colbert. Oh, so so he's going to let him inherit it and then only allow him to examine it. Not quite. But... He is the only one who's allowed to look at any of the records. He's also the only one that's allowed to sign and approve any of the records. Mmm. Convenient. Oh, yeah. Mazarin further forbade the creation of any type of inventory of his his estate. And the will explicitly stated that if any of Mazarin's heirs were to request such an inventory, they would be immediately disinherited as a result. That's not shady at all. That doesn't make anybody go, hmm, what are you trying to hide here? Not at all. Not at all. He named five executors to the will. Guillaume de Lamognon, the presiding judge of the Parisian Supreme Court. Nicolas Fouquet. Zongo Ondede. Michel Letelier. 
And of course, Colbert, because that motherfucker's not going anywhere for a little while. Now, you might be wondering why Mazarin would include Fouquet, given how tense their relationship had become. But in spite of their personal issues, Fouquet had a great deal of sway with the Supreme Court, which is why he and La Mignon were included. Mm. Mazarin knew they had the power to check any challenges that might be made to the will. Cardinal Mazarin finally passed away on March 9th, 1661, and it is with his ending that we reach the real beginning of unraveling the truth of the man in the iron mask. Is that the year, was it Fouquet that went into prison? Oh yeah, Fouquet is almost out of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't have long left. Aww. He doesn't die until 1680, but he's about to get arrested, so, you know, shit happens. I think now is a good time for a break before I bring out the next course. Welcome back. I hope you're still hungry because there's plenty more where that came from. Shortly after Mazarin breathed his last, Colbert set about making some interesting revisions to his super his super secret last will and testament. <laughs> Turns out that when something's super secret, you can change stuff and people probably won't know. Shady. Oh yeah. Thanks to a few copies of the text that have survived, historian Paul Sonino was able to identify significant revisions and elaborations that were inserted following Mazarin's death. One key change was increasing the number of mentions of Antoine Hercule Picon, Colbert's right-hand man and treasurer. Monsieur Picon's mentions increased from just one in the final draft made during Mazarin's lifetime to three in the revised versions of the will. Specifically, Colbert mentions that he alone would be permitted to review any books kept by Picon. So it seems that he was making a concerted effort to shield Picon from any shady bookkeeping he may have been involved in as much as possible. So it's like, oh, I don't want you to get caught doing anything bad, so I don't want anyone to know that you're a fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'm tired, and I don't know what I wrote here, but it did not make sense, so I hope that what I said out loud made sense. (laughs) (laughs) It's important to note that the executors were smart enough not to distribute any copies of the will. However... They were not smart enough to guard the originals, which is why copies of the various drafts of the will survive today. Bunch of dummies. <laughs> why wouldn't you get rid of that? Well, I mean, you can't get rid of all of it. You have to keep it somewhere, but it's like you probably should have locked it up. Don't just leave it chilling in the middle of your desk, which is what I'm <laughs> assuming happened. I don't actually know, but I feel like that's probably what happened. Oh, don't go into that drawer. Oh. Nuts, how'd you find my secret hiding spot? (laughs) Has the original one framed on the wall? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Now, it turned out the, the executors weren't totally comfortable with the idea of completely preventing an inventory of the estate. They felt like it would raise more questions than they could afford to have hanging over them. 
Which, to be honest, seems like a fair concern. Yep. So instead, they arranged for a half-assed inventory to take place. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Slap that shit together real quick. It's totally fine. While they were busy bickering about how to best handle this situation, they also made sure there was a nice long delay in the customary placing of seals upon Mazarin's possessions, which was also required under French law. Hmm. So, you know, some shit definitely disappeared. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Five-finger discount. Yeah. Except probably, like, five fingers, a carriage, some hidden dungeons (laughs) filled with treasure. (laughs) Like, you know, just take whatever you can. If you can carry it, it's yours now. Congratulations. On March 29th, King Louis XIV ordered the executors to proceed with an inventory. Because, well, he was an absolute monarch who could do whatever the fuck he wanted. This led to a March 31st gathering of four out of the five executors, uh, Lamoignon was not there, as well as two notaries at the Louvre. Yes, that Louvre. Cardinal Mazarin had private chambers in the fucking Louvre. Oh my god. Wasn't that a palace back in the day, though? I mean, it was being used to house artworks while he was living there, so I don't know if it was ever actually used as a palace or not. I can't answer that question. (laughs) Did not prepare for that question to be on the (laughs) test. (laughs) At this point, his possessions had sat unsealed and uninventoried for 22 days. Dang. That's a long time. Bunch of shit definitely disappeared. Yeah. For sure. Over a series of we don't even know how many meetings that took place between March 31st and July 6th, the executors had out that half-baked inventory. Minutes and other written records of many of these meetings were scarce or non-existent. Hmm. What we do know for sure is that the value of Mazarin's estate far exceeded what the faux inventory reflected, and that the executors of the will and King Louis XIV were well aware of Mazarin's illicit holdings. Whether they sought to continue the cover-up after his death because they felt indebted to him, or did so out of self-interest, is considerably harder to say. It's probably the latter. Yeah. Yeah. My instinct is that self-interest played a major role because many of these same people profited considerably by keeping their mouths shut. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once you've done a cover-up, you normally want it to stay covered up. You don't want, like, the toes poking out at the bottom. You gotta keep it covered. (laughs) Seal that shit right up. Don't let it out. Why are we so sure the sordid secret that resulted in the man in the iron mask being arrested is tied to Cardinal Mazarin's will, you might ask? Is it simply because Fouquet was an executor, and we know he was closely connected to Dauge? No, it's more than that. As Paul Sanino points out, out of that total of five executors, there were two other executors in addition to Fouquet who are definitively connected to Dauge. Oh. 
Michelle Letellier would later countersign Eustache Dauger's arrest warrant. Mm. And Jean-Baptiste Colbert would later supply the funds used to transfer Dauger to Pinarolo. Damn. That's suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Okay, that's going to be stuck in my head now. All right, I'm fine. <laughs> the Marquis de Louvois, who'd written that letter to Fouquet in which it's clear that both of them know this Dauger guy and know what his shady secret is mm-hmm. to the point that they can write about it without being like, hey, remember that time we stole a bunch of stuff? We got to talk about that. <laughs> Turns out that Marquis de Louvois also just so happened to be the son of Michel Letelier. Oh. All of this points to one crucial thing. When Dauge was a valet, he was almost certainly involved in transporting and hiding the illicit goods that belonged to Cardinal Mazarin's estate. But if that's the case, why did it take eight years for Dauger to be arrested? Emily already asked that question, but I'm bringing it back. I wonder if he, if he threatened to tell the secret if they didn't give him more of a cut or something. Like, you it's know something that they don't want anybody else to know. Did he try to blackmail them and they were like, fuck you, we're going to throw you in jail. I do love blackmail. <laughs> just like as a concept keep your secrets secret people Yep, gotta lock that shit down well that is also a long story so you're gonna have to bear with me because before I can tell you why it took 8 years for Dage to be arrested we have to deal with Nicolas Fouquet's arrest that took place in September 1661 just 6 months after Mazarin died Wow, they locked him up quickly. Oh, yeah. They were all over that. <laughs> they left Mazarin shit out for almost a whole month, and then within another <laughs> five months, they locked up Fouquet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mazarin might have been gone, but Fouquet's biggest enemy, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, was still alive, filled with petty anger, and hell-bent on taking Fouquet down. Well, that fucking sucks. That's so French. Come on. <laughs> so French. <laughs> It's so French. Thanks to Mazarin's faith in Colbert and Louis XIV's faith in Mazarin, Colbert found himself in a prime position to destroy Fouquet once and for all because he now had the king's ear. Mm -hmm. So what did he do? Colbert whispered his venom against Fouquet straight to Louis XIV, and that shit worked. Of course it did. Bad-mouthing people, it's been around for a long time because it works. (laughs) Fouquet became the scapegoat in Louis XIV's mind for the crimes Mazarin had committed. That's how crime works, right? It automatically transferred to someone else after you die because we aren't allowed to speak ill of the dead. Mm. So someone had to take that shit. Um, he's dead, can't be him. I guess it's, uh, that guy. Sounds right. Sounds legit. By the way, I uh, do speak ill of the dead, and I don't care. (laughs) They deserve it. They didn't suddenly become better because they died. (laughs) Haunt me. Rasputin already is, and he hid a battery from me. (laughs) (laughs) 
He literally and figuratively took my power, but I'm still gonna talk shit on him, so do it. <laughs> of course, the connection was easy to force because Fouquet had been running the treasury that Mazarin was constantly abusing. Mm -hmm. Combined with the fact that Fouquet's position as executor of Mazarin's will meant he was now also intimately familiar with all of the irregularities it contained and of how shoddily the inventory was made, and Fouquet had a massive target on his back. But Fouquet was fortunate in one way that Daugier would not be. Fouquet's position as procurer, sorry, procurer general for the parliament, which is the French Supreme Court, not the parliament like the parliament sure. in the UK, mm -hmm. all right, provided him with protection from any sort of extraordinary tribunal. So Louis had to give him a trial. Oh, okay. Can't just be like, bye, bitch. Everyone be like, hey, what happened to that guy? You know, the guy that did the treasury, had all the money, where'd he go? Mm -hmm. I like that guy. What happened to him? So yeah, they had to give him a trial. Louis ironed out the details of the plan for Fouquet's arrest with Colbert and Michel Letellier. They invited Fouquet to an early morning meeting on September 5th, immediately after which Fouquet was arrested by D'Artandian. Oh. Yes, D'Artandian, the lieutenant of the Musketeers. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make this shit up. <laughs> That's so French. It's so French. But again, it was one thing to arrest Fouquet, and it was another thing entirely to be able to keep him in prison forever because he had to be tried. Despite ransacking Fouquet's papers and possessions, Louis XIV's henchmen came up with precious little that could be used as evidence against Nicolas Fouquet. So they ultimately charged him with embezzling a pension worth 120,000 livres, diverting state funds to finance his own lavish lifestyle, and other offenses that I'm going to be less specific about because I didn't look them all up. <laughs> Took them several days to read all the charges of the trial, and I didn't want to be here for several days. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah. That's a lot I'm of charges. Kidding. While he was being tried, Fouquet persisted in speaking out by publishing his responses to the charges against him publicly. Ooh. Insisting that all of the evidence in his favor was being suppressed and that the evidence that supposedly damned him was being deliberately misinterpreted to make him appear guilty of crimes that were actually committed by Mazarin. That's going to make them want even more to shut you up. You're not wrong. Among these extensive written replies to the charges against him, Fouquet wrote, quote, Mazarin had used my credit to obtain from Jebec paintings for some 300,000 livres in 1660 without having paid for them, bequeathing them to the king by his testament, which states I could work something out with the dealers. Monsieur Colbert may have decided to alter this portion of the testament, but the king and his executors have seen it several times." End quote. Now you're just dragging uh, Louis XIV right on into this shit. Yep. 
But hey, I guess you figure you don't have anything left to lose because you're already on trial for a bunch of shit you didn't do, so you might as well have at it. Mm-hmm. Fouquet's responses go on to point the finger directly at Antoine Hercule Picon, that treasurer and Colbert's right-hand guy, and Francois Lebas, another of Colbert's cronies, who I'm not going to say again because his name's like fucking impossible and I hate it and I'm not going to say it again. Um, Fouquet alleged he could further prove his innocence if given access to their letters, but Colbert had conveniently just taken off with all of those. Oh, as you do. Yeah, seems fair, right? I like to abscond with all the evidence when my enemy is on trial, too. In December 1664... Fouquet was found only sufficiently responsible for the crimes he was charged with to be banished from France for life, not to death like Louis wanted, and not to life in prison. But this simply would not do, as it would allow Colbert to roam free in other countries telling his secrets to whoever wanted to listen. So Louis XIV did the only thing he could do. He amended the banishment order and changed the sentence to life in prison and locked him up. Of course he did. Absolute monarch. Did I mention that? Mm -hmm. Absolute monarch. Not a good thing to have. No. You don't want one of those. France didn't either. That's why they killed him later. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the story. His problems seemingly solved, Louis XIV turned his attention to conquest, because, you know, kings like that shit. Mm -hmm. They're like, I like your stuff that you have. It's really nice, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to kill a bunch of your people. It's going to be awesome. Specifically, Louis wanted to fulfill Cardinal Mazarin's failed quest to obtain the Spanish Low Countries, but his ministers, especially Colbert and Lyon, were against provoking war with the Spanish. They were concerned with silly things like domestic reforms and not wanting to threaten the stability of Europe. (laughs) What? How boring. I know, what the fuck was their problem, right? (laughs) Okay, nerds. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, guys, all I want to do is start one petty war and steal a bunch of Spanish low countries. And all you want to keep talking about is the fucking stability of Europe? Ugh. What a drag. Boring. All right. In the hopes of placating Louis and preventing war, Lyon struck a deal with the Holy Roman Empire, of which Spain was a part. Mm-hmm. That deal resulted in a secret treaty that would grant the Spanish Low Countries to France in the event that the current king of Spain died without any heirs. That possibility was considered extremely likely because of all the inbreeding. Yeah, that's actually going to come up in a second here. (laughs) (laughs) Because Charles II, last of the Habsburg dynasty, (laughs) and Louise's cousin was only eight years old and had significant health problems caused by inbreeding, mmm, incest. You had me at Habsburg. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> I know. That distinctive shitty drawl was also caused by incest, in case anyone's curious. But he also inherited this pesky renal problem that meant his kidneys didn't filter out toxins properly. Huge bummer. Yeah, Huge that, bummer. That could be problematic. Plus, he was infertile, but I'm sure they didn't figure that out yet because he's eight. Yeah. They were just banking on him dying before he could have sex. So anyway, that secret deal worked for a tiny little bit, but not that long. <laughs> <laughs> King Louis XIV grew impatient when Charles II had the nerve to not be dead a year later. <laughs> <laughs> it's not happening fast enough. Oh my god, you little shit, just die already! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I guarantee that happened, but oh, in yeah. French. I guarantee it. I would bet my life on it. <laughs> you little merd. So he was like, alright, I think I found a new window of opportunity to provoke a war with the Spanish. So England and the Dutch, who Lindsay knows <laughs> about... See, the thing about England and the Dutch is they hated each other a bunch. And they were at war almost as much as England and France. <laughs> All the time. All the time. They're like, fuck you. No, fuck you. But in their own <laughs> languages, I can't speak those, though. <laughs> so England and the Dutch were at it once again, like, ah, oh, fuck you, really loudly across borders of each other, probably, I assume. Carrier pigeons? Question mark. I don't know. But yeah, so Louis was like, hey, maybe if I offer to help the King of England, who super confusingly was also Charles II, but a different Charles mm -hmm, II mm -hmm. from the Charles II in fucking Spain. Okay? A less inbred Charles II. Still inbred. A slightly less. <laughs> Still inbred, but just a little bit less. Yes. Not as many jaw problems. Probably fewer renal issues as well. Probably. A lot more STDs, though. Yes. What she said. The koalas of the monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's perfect. So anyway, he was like, hey, maybe if I uh, sidle up to Charles II, the English one, not the Spanish one. I hate that fucking guy, even though we're cousins. And I'm like, hey, you know those Dutch motherfuckers? I hate them too. Let's throw rocks at them together. Except the rocks were going to be like bullets and cannonballs and shit. They weren't going to be rocks. And human lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know. But they don't care about that because poor people don't count, as we've already established. Yep. Much more disposable than the cannonballs. Yep. For sure. For sure. So it was like, hey, maybe if I offer to attack the Dutch Republic with him... He'll be like, yeah, cool, let's do it, bro. And then the Spanish will have to join the war because they are allies of the Dutch. Sneaky, sneaky. Checks right? Out. And then, and then, when the Spanish are like, haha, we have to fight you now, I can steal the Spanish Low Countries and my life will be perfect once again until I have another thing that I want that someone tells me I can't have. Mm -hmm. And I can be like, fuck you, cousin Chuck. Fuck you, you little nine-year-old with bad kidney. Why are you still alive? <laughs> it makes perfect sense if you're a power-crazed, egomaniacal creep. And Louis XIV, like most kings, definitely was that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
herself, Louis became all about, setting the plans into motion for that secret war against the Dutch. But, if this opportunity was going to come to fruition, it meant absolutely nothing could come to light that could alienate England from France. Anything that might make France look bad to England, that shit had to be shut down so fast that it was like, oh, you kind of poked your head out a tiny little bit, you're a dead groundhog now. That's how fast it had to happen. (laughs) (laughs) That had to be tough because England sure didn't look at France in a, with, with rose-colored glasses. Mm-mm. No, they don't like each other. It's no. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but this brings us back to Cardinal Mazarin and his shady money. Okay? Because some of the property Mazarin attained by being a shady asshole belonged to to Charles II's mother, Queen Henrietta Maria, Uh with whom young Charles had fled to the safety of France when the Civil War broke out in England that resulted in Charles I dying. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Oliver Cromwell was a thing. Yep. Yeah, I cut out all the parts about Oliver Cromwell out of the story because I was like, fuck that guy. (laughs) I don't like Oliver Cromwell. To be clear, I also don't like Charles I or Charles II. I don't like a lot of monarchs. Or Henry VIII a lot, even though that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Fucking asshole. Syphilis. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, back to what we were actually talking about before I just started ranting about how much I hate monarchs. The queen found herself dependent upon the French, especially Cardinal Mazarin, to provide for her and her son, and was eventually forced to part with many royal jewels that she had brought with her. Mm -hmm. That's like the only thing she had access to in terms of assets, so that's what she took. She especially had a lot of really big diamonds, and one thing that we know about Mazarin is he loved really big diamonds. (laughs) Me too! Diamonds are a cardinal's best friend. Just in case you didn't know. Jesus is a close second. (laughs) If anybody has any extra super large diamonds laying around that they want to send to our P.O. box. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't have stolen them from someone, though. And not blood diamonds, please. Yes. (laughs) But all the others, send them our way. Thanks. We'll also take small diamonds. We're not picky true. I go to the P.O. Box. There's a bunch of costume jewelry in there now. <laughs> <laughs> Smells like old lady perfume. <laughs> Clip-on earrings. God damn it, Grandma. <laughs> old ladies don't listen to this show. Quit it. <laughs> anyway, Mazarin arranged to get those for a fraction of what they were actually worth. You know, because he was a dick. Mm-hmm. See, there I go, speaking ill of the dead again. Whoops, I forgot the rules. (laughs) Now that Charles II had been restored to the throne of England, those jewels and any other property that belonged to the English throne could, and in fact already had been, demanded to be returned. When Charles initially insisted on it, Louis had been in a much stronger position to simply refuse the request. 
And frankly, Charles had too much shit going on because he literally just got his throne back and was mm-hmm. probably a little worried about getting his head chopped off, and he should have been. Yeah. Fair. So he got away with it the first time, but the fragile coalition between England and France that Louis required to bring about the Dutch War and consequentially his chance to seize the Spanish Low Countries would easily have been destroyed were Charles II to be reminded, by the way, France has a bunch of your mom's shit still and they don't want to give it back. You know, all those diamonds, they got them. Ask for them back. Okay, so Cardinal Mazarin's will once again becomes an absolutely crucial secret to keep a lid on. Paul Sonino theorizes that all Dauger would have needed to do to get back on Louis' radar in the worst possible way was get a little drunk and start running his mouth about the dirty truths he'd seen hidden in Picon's account books related to Mazarin's estate or specific pieces of property he probably would have been ordered to move in secret because he was a valet. Mm -hmm. Now, a huge part of this rests on the fact that Sonino believes Dauger had been the valet to Antoine Hercule Picon himself, the treasurer. Whether or not that's true, I can't say. I feel like Sonino makes a good case for it, but if I would have added all of this in here, we'd be here my whole fucking life. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) I'm not going to hang my hat and say that he was definitely Picon's valet, but I will say that Sonino makes a good case for it. Plus, throw onto that fire that's already fueled up the fact that Picon himself was an alcoholic who tended to run his mouth a lot. And you're like, yeah, that guy definitely would have told his valet even more shit that he wasn't supposed to know. Oh, yeah. So I feel like if. If he were, if Dauge were Picon's man, he probably knew a lot of shit he wasn't supposed to. Like, a lot of shit. But, you know, sometimes you just gotta get a little drunk and say the quiet part of your thoughts out loud, and that's just what happens in life. <laughs> Don't say the quiet part out loud. It's supposed to be quiet. Okay, so anyway, what they ended up deciding to do, assuming that at some point Dauge told someone something he shouldn't have, and Louis was like, oh my god, this guy is going to spill the beans, and I really, really, really want the Spanish Low Countries, Mm -hmm. but I also want to keep those diamonds because I'm an asshole. They decided what they're going to do is lure him to... Oh, fuck, I forgot to look up how to pronounce this. I'm going to say Calais. That's probably wrong. I think that's correct. That sounds right, yeah. To Calais on the pretense of doing some work for Jean-Baptiste Colbert. Which, again, that makes a lot of sense if he was actually employed by by Picon. Because Picon and Colbert were like two birds of a feather. Mm -hmm. Like, he probably already got loaned out to Colbert for things in the past. Mm -hmm. So... I think there's definitely a symmetry there that works. So he was lured there on the pretext of doing some work for Colbert. And when he got there, they were like, oh, we're going to fucking arrest this guy. (laughs) And they did. And then they proceeded to keep him in various jails until he finally died. That sucks. All because you knew something that somebody didn't want you to know. 
And you probably shouldn't have told anybody about it. It's bonkers. That's so French. That's so French. It's okay, because he went back to Pinarolo, and then he ended up being lent out to Nicolas Fouquet as a valet, which further proves, since that's the only person he was allowed to interact with at all, that they both knew the same shit already. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, you wouldn't be allowed to let him have contact with each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so he ended up spending the rest of his life in jail. Prison, sorry rest of his life in prison and he died in the Bastille. Then he was buried and the name that they put on his grave I think is Marchioli. Hmm. Hmm. But, you know, not his real name. And Daugé might not be either. Um, There are some historians who argue that it's not Daugé at all and that that's like a red herring and that we still don't know who the man in the iron mask really was. And honestly, all of that's possible, but based on the number of documents that say the name Dage, it's probably reasonable to conclude that that was a name he gave people, whether it was his birth name or not, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to tell you. So, he spent the rest of his life locked away because he knew about the Queen's Diamonds, probably, That sucks. That's so shitty. Didn't get a trial. Just, you're in jail now. That sounds right. Yep. Congrats. So yeah, that is the story of the man in the iron mask. Probably. Allegedly. Maybe. I'd never heard that any of that theory Mm -mm. before. The only theory that I'd ever heard was that there was... I mean, you knew that the king was probably trying to hide something. For somebody to be put away like that, it was likely tied to the king. Mm -hmm. But I had not heard all that. That was entirely new. I enjoyed. But also makes me sad for that guy because that sucks. Yeah, definitely. And what's like even more depressing is that he was kept for most of his confinement, like when they first arrested him and then again at the end of his life until he died, he was literally locked in a cell by himself. He wasn't allowed to have confession like most prisoners were allowed because he was a nobody, so you could just deny him all of his rights. He was told if he uttered so much as his name to anyone, he would be killed. And apparently he never complained about any of it. He just accepted it. Wow. It tells you a lot about the society as a whole if this guy's just like, eh, okay, guess that's it. He just knew he was fucked, so he accepted it. He didn't complain. He wasn't allowed to write letters to anybody. Nothing. I mean, the sad thing is he probably didn't have much of a family, and if he did have them, they probably weren't aware of what happened to him because, like, even Fouquet's family tried to get Fouquet out for I don't know how long. Mm-hmm. Didn't work. He died in... Pinarolo in 1680, so... Damn. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the story. It's depressing, it's dramatic, it's fucked up, and it's French. And it's a mystery. And it still might not be solved, Mm -hmm. probably. There's lots of questions. We don't know that much about what happened to him while he was actually in the prisons, which is why the story abruptly ended, because it's (laughs) like, well... We can guess Mm -hmm. (laughs) some more, but the only thing we know for sure is that he was allowed to be a valet to Fouquet for a number of years until Fouquet died. That was it. 
interesting stuff. All right, um, so ingredients for this dish were sourced from Paul Sonino's book, The Search for the Man in the Iron Mask, a historical detective story. Casey Deemer's article, Mysterious Man in the Iron Mask, revealed 350 years later. That's from Live Science. Evan Andrews' article, Who Was the Man in the Iron Mask, for History.com. An Encyclopedia Britannica article on the Man in the Iron Mask. A bunch of pages from Wikipedia, because let's be honest, I don't remember people's death years and shit, and I always have to double-check it. Yeah. Not digging through a 250-page book looking for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, a page on Jules Cardinal Mazarin from Encyclopedia Britannica, and another one on Charles II, the fucking Spanish one. Not the English one. <laughs> a page on Joseph Delore from lordbyron.org. And finally, an article by Manuel Ancede called Research Confirms That Intermarrying Caused the Habsburg Jaw in Spanish Royals from El Pais. <laughs> I love it. It's where I found out about the kidney thing. <laughs> I was like, I know you're all fucked up because of all the inbreeding and you had a Habsburg jaw, but like, what was the more serious part of the health problems? Because obviously it was pretty bad. It was a kidney thing. Yeah. They had a lot of really bad things happen. Well, you know, France. What are you going to do? Spanish intermarrying cousins together a lot. What are you going to do? Moral of the story, don't fuck your family. Moral of the story, if you know something, never get drunk. Yes. <laughs> Keep those tiny voices to yourself. Don't say the quiet part out loud. <laughs> All right. Does anybody have anything good that they want to share before I close this puppy up? I do. So I typically, because my hair is dyed, I get this spray that I'll put in it after the shower to like, uh, rehydrate it. That's the word I was looking mm -hmm. for. And I ran out of it. So so we went on this like super fast Target run the other night because we had to get a birthday present for one of my youngest friends before a birthday party she had to go to that afternoon. And so I like sent her into the the like the bag and card aisle and I was like, you stay right there. I'm going to go grab my stuff real quick. And so I like frantically grabbed my stuff off the shelf. Didn't think about it until later. Until today, when I went to go put the spray in and realized it's not a spray, I bought the serum, which you have to like rub in, not just like spray mm -hmm. it on yeah. top. So I was like, shit. But the good thing is, it actually works better on my hair than the spray did. So hey. I'm like, <laughs> happy accident. There you go. <laughs> so, going to be a serum girl from now on. How serendipitous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So that's my something good. An accidental like uh, hair care improvement. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, okay, something good. I started classes this past week. Mm -hmm. And funny enough, by the time I got, I was like a half hour from being in town for classes. It's a four-hour drive down there. Half hour from arriving and all my classes went virtual. So that sucked. <laughs> it's like four hour drive and I didn't even need to be here. Could have just stayed home. But uh, I'm really liking the courses and I'm excited because I get to do like 
bioinformatics and metabolomics and a whole bunch of big words. <laughs> whole bunch of big words. Big words. <laughs> I'm going to be dealing with big data sets and I'm kind of excited because I haven't gotten to do that before. So I'm really looking forward to it. Nice. I like it. Um, my something good is that I think I'm totally better from COVID now, minus the fact that my short-term memory is still fucked, but based on my research, that might come back in three (laughs) to six months, so we'll see what happens. But everything else stopped. Even the coughing's finally gone. Although I do have a wicked case of the burps tonight, but it's from my root beer, so. (laughs) Barks will do that. I'm okay with it. It's tasty and it's got caffeine in it, and that's really all that matters to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm finally better. Now I just have to try to figure out how to make up for all the shit I didn't do while (laughs) I was taking forced COVID naps. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been trying to do that. Finish this story, though. Probably could have written a slightly better script. But it's all right. I thought it was good. I thought it was really good. Because in the end, we made fun of some French people and some Spanish people and some English people and the Dutch a little tiny bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there goes all our European listeners. <laughs> listeners. Sean I don't think so. They know. They know. Yeah. They killed their own monarchy. They killed their own monarchs a mm. bunch of times. They know. We get That's it. true. They're like, it's fine. They were kind of assholes. Don't even worry about it. Totally make fun of them for getting their heads chopped off. Yeah. I got I gotta stop staring into space when I <laughs> smile about thinking about them getting their heads chopped off. It's weird. They're not good people. It's totally fine. It's and I wasn't there. Lindsay knows if it happened a long time ago, it doesn't count. You could totally smile and laugh you about can. it. It's true. All right, I guess I better close this on up because this has already been kind of a semi-long episode. Thank you for visiting our beautiful pizzeria and enjoying a concealed slice of historical mystery. Pineapple Pizza Podcast. Sweet and cheesy. Not everyone understands our awesomeness, but we're glad that you do? Question mark? If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to help support us, check out our Tea Public shop for some amazingly fun and funny merch. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, you can do that on buymeacoffee.com and buy us a fresh slice, because we can never get enough of basically anything, if we're being honest. If you absolutely love the show and you want to check out some fantastic bonus content, you can become a donor on Patreon and earn all kinds of amazing benefits. We have three tiers to accommodate almost any budget. The $3 Mythbuster, $7 Cryptid Hunter, and $15 Storyteller. Become a patron today and start enjoying all the perks and extra content right away. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at PineAppPizzaPod. That's PineAppAppPizzaPod. You can also send us questions, comments, and topic ideas at PineAppPizzaPod. A-P-P, pizza pod at gmail.com. Remember, there's the two P's in app. Otherwise, you're emailing someone else, and I don't want to be held responsible for that. Thanks for stopping in for some deliciously weird morsels. And just remember, no matter how you slice it, you're awesome. And we love you.